Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Thanks everyone for coming. Before I start, I'd just like to acknowledge that we, and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we're gathered tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, and as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices at this university, may we also pay respects to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. And thank you to Sydney Ideas for having us uh, yet again. Uh, Griffith Review has a, a great collaboration going with our editions and Sydney Ideas. So it's a pleasure to be back. So, without further ado, I'm going to introduce the panel that we have, all contributors from Griffith Review 56, Millennial Strike Back. Someone wants to wave a copy around if you haven't happened to have not seen it. There it is. It's a fantastic cover. And on my immediate right, we have Francis Flanagan. Francis is the research director at United Voice and an affiliate of the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Her book, Remembering the Revolution, Dissent, Culture and Nationalism in the Irish Free State, was published by Oxford University Press and shortlisted for the Royal Historical Society Whitfield Prize in 2016. Next to Francis is Natalie O'Brien. Nat is the Economic Fairness Campaigns Director at GetUp. After a stint with the New South Wales Department of Premier and Cabinet, Nat earned her campaigning stripes in the US before joining GetUp in 2013. Nowadays, she spends her time cyberbullying the federal treasurer and begging people on Facebook to care about tax reform. Next to Nat is Michael Newton. Mike received his master's in political economy at the University of Sydney. He has led a peripatetic career, primarily in the media, arts, and not-for-profit sectors. And on the end is Adam Peaston. Adam graduated from the University of Sydney in 2011. He's a strategist and data analyst with a background in engineering and design. Adam is currently a consultant with a global firm of engineers environment, and environmental scientists. He works with communities, not-for-profits, and the social sector to help social enterprises derive benefit from technologies currently deployed overwhelmingly for corporate and commercial benefit. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later. Could you join me in welcoming the panel? Uh, my name is Jareth Head. I am the co-editor of Millennial Strike Back and the assistant editor at Griffith Review in my not co-editor time. Um, I, Julianne Schultz was meant to be hosting tonight. She sends her apologies. She wasn't able to for personal reasons. Um, so I hope I can fill her very impressive shoes. Um, and I would like to start by thanking Julianne um, in her absence for the, the opportunity that she gave me in co-editing this edition. It's, it's had very great feedback. Um, it was an absolute pleasure to work with everyone on. Um, so thank you all for your contributions and everyone that is here or is not here who also was involved. Um, the, the edition sort of came into being, I guess, early last year when I was doing a bit of research with Griffith University's Policy Innovation Hub uh, around the policies 
that the major parties had for the federal election, um, particularly with relation to young people. Um, and there wasn't many. I don't think there ever really is. Young people are kind of a hard target and a soft target, so we don't really get much of a look in a lot of the time. Um, but the idea of the edition wasn't so much to contribute to the whole sledging war between boomers and, and young people or whatever generation we want to tag them as. It was more, despite the catchy title, I know Millennial Strike Back kind of speaks aggression, but it wasn't solely the intention. Um, it was more to give everyone a bit of a chance to speak about what it is to be young in Australia and internationally at the moment. It's a very uncertain time, a lot of seismic shifts, and so but Julianne thought it was very important just to give young people a platform to talk about their experiences, to talk about the future, and to talk about the way that the world looks and feels to them. Um, and I think that the collection does a really good job of that. So I'm going to get everyone to read a little bit from their pieces and, and introduce their pieces themselves rather than me doing it for them. Um, so we'll, we'll start with you, Mike. Um, the conversation before we do start is going to revolve largely, largely around work. That's pretty much the underlying theme here between everyone's pieces. So yours is probably the most pointedly about work, Mike. So did you want to give us a little bit of info about it and maybe read a passage? Uh, sure. Uh, so my piece was mostly about the changing nature of work um, and how that's making um, things harder for the millennial generation. Uh, the big changes are things that get thrown around um, in a lot of conversations, uh, globalisation, automation, casualisation. Um, I wanted to make the point in the piece that a lot of these changes are structural changes and because of that they're going to require radical solutions. Um, so here's the start of the piece. I have this social dread when meeting new people, a nervousness that keeps me on edge during the early introductions and vocal sparring that takes place after shaking hands and saying each other's names. It's not an aversion to interacting with strangers. I'm just on the lookout for someone to ask me the question that inevitably comes up. As new acquaintances seek to elicit information, the first question that comes to mind is, what do you do? I guess this is a reasonable enough way to find out a lot about someone quickly. After all, people take a lot of pride in their work and some generally enjoy it. But what if you feel you're totally overeducated for your current position? Maybe it's just something you're doing for money and have no attachment to. Maybe you're in a job because you need as many shifts as you can get. And all the jobs you apply for that you really want don't even acknowledge your application. You also know that if you've mentioned that you've worked in, say, manual labour, a whole series of prejudices and assumptions are going to begin barreling through the mind of the person you're talking to. And you also know that the absolute last thing you want to have a discussion about when you're trying to enjoy yourself at a party is whether pay is meritocratic or if the unemployed could get a job if they just tried. Commentators are happy to impugn the character of a generation for a lack of work ethic that supposedly underpinned the success of previous generations. We're not willing to work hard, they say. We can't commit to a job. 
we aren't willing to save. As if casualised workplaces, lack of career tracks and an inability to pay a gargantuan house deposit are the result of our failings. I look at myself and my friends struggling and it makes the generational battle that plays out online when discussing the housing market all the more distasteful. A number of older commentators assert that we value different things and this explains our inability to enter the housing market. Instead of saving for a mortgage, we're consuming avocado and coffee at a staggering rate. We're spending a lot on entertainment. This often leads into a discussion of how we enjoy working flexible hours and not being tied down to one career path, as if there is some desire to constantly move between jobs. There is no evidence of any of this. The job churn rate for those aged 20 to 34 is lower than in the past. Older workers are actually changing jobs more frequently. And ABS evidence suggests there is no difference in work ethic between the generations. And yet this myth persists, despite our willingness to do unpaid work and in the hope of finding a career. So if there's no evidence that shows we lack the willingness to work, it must be the changing nature of work itself that is creating barriers for young people. Today's employment market has changed and continues to change at an accelerating rate. My generation is affected by the same changes as the disaffected Trump and Brexit voters. Structural changes in the economy have prim primarily hit the lower end of the job market, the sectors where young workers predominate. Work is different today because of the globalised nature of the economy. The rapid pace of technological change, particularly automation, and the mass casualisation or increased flexibility of the workforce. Uh, in the developed world, these factors are increase, increasing inequality by holding down wages and conditions at the bottom while raising them at the top. Thanks for that, Mike. Um, it's an interesting point that the myth persists despite all of that evidence. Um, I'm wondering if you have any, any thoughts on, on why that you'd like to share. I mean, you talk about the changing nature of, of the workforce, of, of the labour force and of work itself, um, and the increased casualisation. There's a great, you know, people love to roll out the fact that unemployment hasn't increased in Australia, despite the fact that underemployment has remained high and has increased quite markedly for young people in particular, and all of those jobs being created are well, the full-time work is, is decreasing, the number of full-time jobs just to be replaced by casual jobs. And yet, as you say, this, this myth persists. Is it just standard intergenerational discord? Do you think that it's somehow linked to the, the, the broader forces that you spoke about? Uh, I think a large part of it is a way for certain other parts of to dismiss the opinions and policy ideas of the youth of the country. Um, the youth has certain what tend to be more progressive, at least relative to other age cohorts in the uh, country. And I think a lot of the 
dissatisfaction that the youth of the country feel a way to dismiss that and not take those policy concerns seriously is to go into these quixotic arguments about kids spending too much time at cafes or whatever way to trivialise the complaints of a generation. Um, and then, of course, I think there is, especially in light of the global financial crisis, I think it's beginning to be clear that um, the current economic system uh, is not something that a lot of the younger generation uh, supports and a way to not doing anyth anything about that is to dismiss and trivialise some of these arguments. And the overwhelming impression, um, I guess, with talking about work, particularly for young people, is that we're sort of being set up for a bit of a fall with all these factors combining, and I'm wondering if anyone has any thoughts in general on the panel. Um, maybe start with you, Mike, if you have the, the future of work for young people in the immediate what, what does it look like? Are we going to keep limping along for the time being or is there something sort of more structural coming? Uh, well, I think some of those structural issues I talked about are only going to accelerate in, in the next 10 years or so. Um, I don't think there's a way to get around the fact that automation is going to mean that less people are acquired for certain roles and as we move into a digital information services economy, a lot of those, there will be new jobs created and new industries created, but they're not going to be as labour intensive because you do not need for information goods as many people um, to produce them as you do for, say, manufactured or um, a lot of primary goods. Uh, so I think there, and I don't see at the moment the, any shift away from the move towards casualisation of the workforce. So those trends don't seem to be, um, I don't see why they would not continue um, to disadvantage um, workers into the foreseeable future. Anyone else got any thoughts to add? Um, perhaps I can offer a, a political perspective on why I think this will change. Um, a couple of years ago, if we uh, had gone into Chris Bowen's office to talk about a universal basic income, we would have been laughed out of there. Uh, and over the past month, we've seen the shadow treasurer responding um, in earnest uh, at speeches um, with an op-ed in The Guardian about why we shouldn't have a UBI. But the, the very fact that he is being forced to engage in this debate is a seismic shift uh, in the way that politicians are starting to think and treat these issues. When Labor in the last election had uh, brought in their negative gearing policy, um, it was seen within the party ranks as too extreme, too crazy. Uh, can we really go after uh, the property market um, uh, and property investors in this way? Uh, and we, they absolutely uh, 
that that new policy and, and uh, measure to address how to, housing afford affordability was met um, with public applause. So I think the politicians are recognising that something needs to happen um, and the sort of goalposts of the policy landscape are beginning to shift in a fairly drastic way. We've already seen it happen in the UK and, and the US with Sanders and Corbyn and it's only a matter of time before people with more radical, um, more drastic structural policy ideas begin to be heard because people are thirsty for it and people see really serious, smart people uh, who are working in industries where automation is coming at a rate that we are not prepared for um, are going to force it to happen. Anyone else want to? Yeah. Well, that does segue into what I was going to talk about next. and get Francis and Adam to do a reading of their pieces because the millennials are going to largely bear the brunt of this change, the changing nature of, of the workforce and the ageing population, um, a population that is going to become dependent obviously on welfare as we getting towards retirement, um, the same generation of which is kind of undermining our current welfare policy, but anyway, we won't get into that. Um, and you both mentioned this in your pieces, so perhaps you want to talk a little bit. We'll start with you, Francis, if you want to talk about yours and do a reading. Sure. Uh, so my essay is also about work. Um, it began as a reflection on a time in my life about eight years ago, around the uh, lead up to the birth of my first daughter, um, at the same time I was finishing my PhD. So a word of assurance in case anyone's concerned, I know that the genre of woman in her 30s writing about how a baby changed her perspective is probably could win the prize for most cliche topic on the internet. So I'm not going to talk about stains. Um, what I do want to talk though is about how we as a society organise and value human labour. That's basically about the work of maintenance and the repair of human systems and ecological processes. So by that I'm talking about care for the young, the old, the sick, um, education, culture, things that are cyclical rather than linear forms of human activity. Things that are literally unproductive. They're about repeating and returning things in a cycle. So these are the things that I think are going to be and need to be at the centre of our vision for work in the 21st century. Um, simply because these are the activities that are the precondition for human life. So in my essay, I spent a lot of time talking about care work. Um, it's an activity that's relatively immune to automation because it's fundamentally about relationships. Uh, it's low carbon work. It's not offshoreable. It's effectively a job of the future. And what I want to suggest in the essay is rather than thinking of um, technology meaning the end of work, what we should be thinking about is a shift in emphasis between uh, towards these forms of work, towards um, the work of maintenance and cycle, um, and also shifting the mentality that we attach to those forms of work. At the moment, they're seen as a kind of cost burden on society or a, uh, a profit opportunity for investors. Um, I think we should view them uh, for what they are, which is a, a precondition to all of human existence. Um, so what I want to argue is that we think about the future of work in these positive terms rather than reacting to um, the things that are going to change. It does two things. It, it gives us a sense of agency. It gives us a sense of thinking about what we want these jobs to look like, how power is shared in them, what the status of those jobs are, how they're structured, who owns them. 
Um, it also restores a sense of collective common purpose to society as a whole. Um, I think one of the greatest challenges we're in at the moment is that a sense of disorientation, a sense of impossibility between connecting private individual struggles to some sort of organised collective action to some common end. So that's the theme of the passage that I've chosen to, um, to read. Pregnancy and birth might be one of the most inexorably linear experiences on offer in the 21st century. Ask any woman who's given birth about the experience and you're likely to hear a story with events that are powerfully placed in a narrative sequence and an ending that doesn't just punctuate the story but becomes a sort of temporal frame for her life. The major processes shaping the future of work aren't much like that. The transgressions of planetary boundaries and the displacement of human activity by machines are stealthy and incremental processes, hard to fathom on a day-to-day -day basis and utterly unamenable to diarisation. They have uneven beginnings, moments of great acceleration and inconceivable endpoints on a scale far larger than human life. We are perpetually in them, yet their full collective impacts defy the senses. Increased levels of carbon in the atmosphere cannot be heard or smelled. A bleached barrier reef or a 50-mile crack in West Antarctica can be cheerfully disregarded with a quick scroll through a newsfeed. Algorithms that set the price of labour for digital platform work are designed to invisibly calculate value from moment to moment, unencumbered by human judgement and without scope for negotiation or appeal. Casualisation and digital scheduling are, in combination, reducing the visibility of structural unemployment and the wounds of shame and despair it can inflict. Throughout the 19th and most of the 20th centuries, unemployed and precariously employed people took up space on the road, forming lines and gatherings that had names like the Hungry Mile and the Bull Pit. We don't have a name yet for the experience of sitting alone in a bedroom, in a car or on the toilet, in a state of distraction and latent expectation, awaiting a text message that will signal the prospect of work or its absence. Hundreds of thousands of people do this daily, yet they do it now privately, without ritual or witnesses. Thanks for that, Francis. Um, and I think the changing perspective, or the need for a change in the perspective of or the way we view labour and, and care work um, is really important for the sort of points that, that Mike and Nat have already raised. But first I'll, I'll get Adam to, to talk a little bit about his piece and, and do a reading, and we can come back to some of these points. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Jeff. Um, so, our piece, um, our piece was something that the the conceptual work developed over the course of um, a number of conversations that I had with um, with my collaborator, uh, Christy Mansfield, and um, essentially um, what what we sort of recognised, you know, has been well recognised by this panel, obviously, and by a lot of other people, which is that um, there are a lot of really um, really dangerous and profoundly um, disruptive things that are happening in the world. And a lot of those things are happening to, to people um, and to young people in particular. And, and, um, and we sort of, we wanted to have a little bit of a think about what it is that we could do um, to, to start writing that imbalance. Um, and data and, uh, data and analytics, um, machine learning technologies and, um, and these kind of advancements are, are central central to that idea. Um, so I'm going to read a piece that sort of sets the scene a little bit for, um, for that picture. 
digital, data-driven and machine learning technologies native to the millennial experience are also significantly accelerating the inequality gap and the impact of this is yet to be fully felt. A growing panoply of profit-motivated products and services powered by big data and machine learning algorithms now saturates the mainstream. High-frequency trading is a prime example. An automated trading technique used by banks and institutional investors to analyze enormous volumes of data from global markets and make millions of trades in seconds or less. A whole ecosystem of trading algorithms has evolved to influence, disrupt and prey on human traders and on one another with terrifying speed, giving the wealthiest players in the global financial system, those who can afford the technology, an enormous advantage in the open market. By anticipating and exploiting identified trends using what's known as predictive analytics and prescriptive analytics, those well-heeled, well-resourced, top-of-the-pyramid private banks and financial institutions and their clients make enormous returns on portfolios of often obscure and complex financial products. Naturally enough, finance was among the first industries to embrace machine learning algorithms in the commercial sector. Today, the use of these tools is in hyperdrive, accelerating into new industry areas like fintech or insurtech innovations in finance and insurance. Online and offline retail environments, digital marketing, social media and consumer brands. Data is now widely valued as an asset class of its own. Various more or less traditional forms like operational data, customer and client data, research findings and web traffic are suddenly a coveted and readily tradable commodity. Add to the mix the Internet of Things rapidly assuming control of the built environment around us and we have a world of interconnected complexity beyond the everyday imagination. This technological surge is radically changing the human element of tomorrow's workforce. Ray Kurzweil, Director of Engineering and Chief Futurist at Google, expects robots to achieve human-level intelligence by 2029. Global IT research and advisory company Gartner predicts that this will have displaced up to one full third of jobs by 2025. Andrew McAfee and Eric, uh, his last name is, is quite incomprehensible. Um, I'll let you read the article if you'd like. Um, Co-founders of the MIT Initiative on Digital Economy and authors of the Second Machine Age, Work Progress and the Prosperity in a Time of Brilliant Technologies have called for new policies to protect the vulnerable. They argue that low-wage jobs are especially at risk. Countries that are prolific producers and consumers of technology, they say, will feel the effects first. Everything, even supposing that these new technologies create some jobs to replace those they displace, this is still likely to result in an overall increase in the proportion of the population dependent on welfare of one kind or another. In Australia, according to the valuation report prepared by PwC for the Department of Social Services, millennials have inherited a social security system whose beneficiaries, as at 2015, were estimated to represent a $4.8 trillion cost over the course of their lives to Australian taxpayers. The same report offered by way of scale the estimated Australian GDP in 2015 of only $1.6 trillion. It's a sobering thought. How will it be possible to maintain and improve the well-being for all when there is such a heavy burden to carry and the data indicates the situation is worsening? Something must be done. Thanks for that, Adam. Um, and that was kind of a nice way to finish because that was why I wanted to get Adam to read after you, Francis, because you're almost talking about um, two elements of the same problem. The, the, a lot of the work that you're doing uh, with Chrissy 
And, um, well, the project that I know of is the Greater Shepherd and Lighthouse project. It's all about um, figuring out how data and, and um, analytics can influence and inform better social policy and better social services delivery, which, of course, is strictly related to, well, not strictly, but overwhelmingly related to the care work and the way that we deliver social services. Um, so I wonder um, if either of you, maybe start with you, Francis, the, the, the way that you talk about um, care work and, and labour, particularly through a rents framework, which I'll, I'll get to in a sec, um, is a lot to do with conceptual shift, but is there, what do you see the relationship between the, the need for a, a larger conceptual shift, the way that we talk about and view these things and the actual practical uh, implications of, of this? Um, I think one implication is we need to start thinking about power and start thinking about institutional design. Um, you know, I'm a, a firm believer in a sort of social democratic um, view of society that means that um, there is a, cons a conscious subordination of economic interests to um, democracy and um, that your lodestar for uh, the way you design your society is around the needs of the citizenry. Um, at the moment in the, the care work space, um, rather than having uh, uh, services designed around human need, they're effectively designed as a, as a product and a profit-making opportunity. So um, the implications of uh, returning to, and it's very much a return, it's not a new idea, of um, social democratic design means uh, you uh, need to think about who owns those um, those these services um, and returning them to a sense of democratic control and um, not simply uh, thinking that you sort of um, can, through a regulatory system of you know, quality controls and leave, leave the market untouched, leave it fundamentally the profit-making kind of logic, um, get, to, get to a sound outcome because um, ultimately those systems will never um, be, be designed around human need. They'll always be designed around um, profit maximisation. Um, yeah. And I guess that's um, and it again relates to well, you're, the projects you're working on, Adam. Um, a lot of place-based policy um, projects and initiatives, there's, there's a number of them taking place in Australia at the moment. Greater Shepherd, and there's one in, in Queensland that I've been slightly involved with called Logan Together. Um, they're predicated on the idea of giving power back to the community. Um, the, the, the sort of top-down blanket policy doesn't, doesn't work, and so in that sense there's a greater shift. You, get community co-design in, into the way services delivered and you end up with a, a, a better sharing of power. Um, is that what you've found in, in the work that you, you and Christy have been doing, Adam? Has it, does it feel like the communities uh, get more involved when, you, when power is ceded to them a little bit more? Um, well, I think absolutely it will. Um, I suppose our, our, our finding so far has been that they don't feel as though they have a great deal of opportunity um, to, to enact the kind of change that they'd like to, to enact. Um, and I think, you know, from, from the millennial perspective, um, when, we look, when we look at the macroeconomic forces that have, uh, you know, arguably sort of contributed to where it is that we find ourselves today, um, and we go looking for the answer, if you like, um, we're instinctively, I think, led to look up, you know, at government, for example, at macro, macro socioeconomical political structures um, and want to make really sort of fundamental change at that level that's going to then make everything all right. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
Um, one of the one of the primary things that we're t attempting to do um, is to is to shift focus and say, you know, you can try and make change at that level if you like, but fundamentally, if we can if we can provide community locally with the opportunity to um, to understand the services in the social sector, that is, understand services they're delivering, and advocate for um, for change that they want to see on a local level, um, that those kind of decentralised solutions are going to be much um, much more uh, effective overall, um, and are gonna, it's something that the community really wants to do. So, it's interesting that um, so much of this—well, it's not surprising—but so much of um, the talk of, of change at the community level and does relate to, to social services and care work. Because obviously, particularly as you go out, you know, a lot of this work is done in, in the more disadvantaged areas. So, you, the further out you go from the sort of the centres of the, the large cities, the more this becomes um, an issue. The, the way that you talk about, uh, just to shift back to the more conceptual idea of it, Francis, in your piece, um, is through uh, Hannah Arendt's uh, framework, um, the division of human activity that she addresses in, um, I can't remember, the human condition. Um, she's a thinker that's becoming, not becoming, she's consistently relevant, but seems ever more so at the moment. Um, Interested if you want to talk a little bit about that because I think it segues nicely into into Nat's piece. So um, Hannah Arendt had a sort of tripartite division of human activity into three kinds of categories. Um, one was called labour, the other was called work, and the other was called action. And um, that might seem quite obscure, the, the definition, the, the distance, the difference between labour and work. But she defined it. Um, in these terms. So, so labour is um, cyclical, repetitive activity which is about the maintenance of systems and it is um, non-productive, whereas work is involved in um, the fabrication of raw materials into actually producing things. So, for instance, um, you know, producing a table, for instance, is work, um, whereas feeding a baby or, or teaching a baby how to speak is labour. Um, she also had this third category called action, which was um, the, the individual way in which human beings reveal themselves to each other. So um, writing a poem, for instance, might be action or you know, even writing a Facebook post or, or a lecture, depending on what the lecture was. Um, it's a unique way that we reveal ourselves to each other. Um, and so the thing that sort of really um, moves and excites me about Arendt's idea at the moment we're in is um, that she, it's clear that ideas of efficiency um, and uh, the maximisation of value very much pertain to that category of um, work, not the category of labour. Labour is like intrinsically inefficient, it doesn't produce anything. Um, similarly, the process of, educa of educational uh, things in action, they don't produce anything. What, what these things are is a kind of calling of attention from one human being to another. Um, and it seems that unfortunately where we are now is that the notion of efficiency has broken its bounds, it's broken out of that world of, of work and industrial production and it's now spilled into all places where it really shouldn't be. We can see it in the university, <laughs> we can see it in um, people who work in, in aged care for instance, so um, I work for a union that represents aged care workers and um, fundamentally their job I think we can all agree is about being in relationship with other human beings and hearing them and being them and being re being responsive to their needs. Um, because they're in the paradigm of um, efficiency, they're actually instructed not to form close relationships with their clients. 
you know, some of um, our members using their own money and their own time want to go and buy toilet cleaner to go and help clean the toilets of their clients and they're specifically told not to. Um, so I think that's, you know, this system has led us to a fairly grotesque and um, undesirable place and um, it's time to put efficiency back where it belongs into a category of human activity that's about labour about work, sorry, and for us to recognise it in the context of automation where it's often the routine work that um, is becoming less and less uh, requiring human activity, that we're going to see a narrowing of um, our, our attention going to work and increased amounts of our attention going to labour and action. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah. I'll about that for now. And I think that leads in, into your piece, Nat, because you talk about... Um, the way econobabble has infiltrated um, particularly the, the political rhetoric in, well, in Australia and abroad, but I mean, I guess more widely in, in just, I was just reading uh, David Graeber's debt recently and he talks about the language of econ economics is filtered into pretty much the way that we view society as in, in general. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about your piece and, and give us a reading? Sure. Um, so... I'm actually going to kick off with an anecdote. Um, my job at GetUp is essentially trying to equip people with the tools that they need to decipher uh, what the hell is coming out of our politicians' mouths when they are talking about, gee, I don't know, the capital gains tax discount uh, or whatever the latest thing is. Um, and. Today, I, we've been doing some work on the, the welfare reform reform bill um, that came through in the 2017 budget. And one of the, the worst of those proposals um, is that they're going to make people receiving income support piss in a cup uh, in order to get their payments. Now, there's all manner of reasons why this is a terrible policy, uh, not in the least, um, it, it's totally not evidence-based. It's, it's actually been tried elsewhere in the world and, and there's nothing to show it actually works. But it's a really difficult uh, landmine issue to talk about because there's so many bombs you can step on. There's like drugs and welfare and all these trigger words that people respond really emotionally to. So we're rolling out a, a bunch of message testing and this document lands on my desk today with all of these different messaging frames for us to to put out there and and some of them are you know they they're like oh this this policy is going to violate the disability discrimination act um, and this this policy is going to violate the privacy act it, we're going to be giving private medical data to third party providers and then the, there's this message in the mix so one of the eight message frames that we're going to test and it said the Turnbull government's new drug test policy for people receiving income support will cost Australian taxpayers far more than it will save. Now, I'm sure there's a bunch of you in this room that are like, that, that seems like a reasonable thing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost us lots of money. Like, we don't, we don't want to do this policy. It's not even evidence-based. And it's going to cost us lots of money. Um, but when we talk about things in a cost frame, in an economic cost frame, we are sending the message that... Things that are bad cost money and things that are good come on the cheap. Now, why is that a problem? It's a problem because we millennials who 
uh, are mar much more progressive than the Australian voting population at large. We like things that cost money. We want well-funded hospitals, universal health care. We want to transition to a non-carbon-intensive -carbon economy. And if we do these things and we continue to operate in economic frames that undermine our own arguments, then we are going to lose. So this was, this was the crux of, of my piece, that we need, to, we need to stop talking in neoliberal frames. We need to stop using the language of our captors. Um, and that the language of common sense economics that dominates the debates is holding us back from being able to get where we want to go. Um, all right, so w with that I might read a slightly shorter um, passage from, from, uh, from my text. The end of the Howard years. It was right about here that we millennials were getting out of school, reading more widely, beginning to take notice. While we weren't all left aligned, we were significantly more progressive than the population at large. Polling in October 2007 showed that 73% of 18 to 29 year olds planned to vote for Kevosev. Around this time, I was completing my first year of a Bachelor of International Studies. As politics majors, my cohort at university were as you might expect. We read the Herald, we sneered at real politic, we had conflicted feelings about the UN. But our political awakening was taking place in a unique economic context. The neoliberal project was all but complete, with de demonstrated bipartisan commitment to the cause. The economic policy debates of the nation were raging, but only within the confines set for us by neoliberalism, the same confines dictating our discussions at the Unibar. It seemed that the full extent of our economic ambition as millennials was the Swedish welfare state. And so, when the global financial crisis hit, a once in a generation opportunity to outline a strong, coherent economic alternative we were entirely ill-equipped to advocate for or even imagine a different way. A few of us went to Occupy protests, but then we got back to work. Refugee vigils, climate change marches, DIY rainbows for marriage equality, there was so much to do. The point here is not that these tactics or these issues weren't worthwhile, but simply the predictability with which economic issues failed to rate. We were a generation of economic illiterates, unable to chart a new course. That concept of um, being unable to imagine uh, any differently, I think, is, is a really interesting one. Um, and it relates to another excellent piece in the uh, collection by uh, Andre Dow. Um, and it's called Who Owns the Future? And it looks at the difference between the way social progressives or people that work in social services in particular um, think about the future or don't really think about the future that much because they're too mired in the present and past injustices that are going on to actually get there. So we tend to hand it over to sort of techno-utopians and, and people obsessed with um, the fact that technology will, will fix all of our problems. 
Um, it, I guess the, the interesting point in, in all of this is that there seems to be agreements that there needs to be this uh, cultural shift that, that happens. Um, but there's this tension between how do, how do we, how do we change uh, the framework from an economic one to more of a, a social justice one? Do you have any thoughts on what such a shift? I know it's a big question to ask anyone, but what does a new economic literacy look like that's not based in economics? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the big exciting thing is this is happening and it's starting. Um, we've seen Bernie Sanders in the US and Jeremy Corbyn in the UK um, sort of defeat all odds and far surpass anyone's expectations um, for how well they would do. And they, they rode to that on, on a youth vote, on, on a, a sort of excitement that this was something different, it was something authentic, uh, it was something new. So I, I, I mean, it's sort of a plug for my own workplace, but I, I do think political participation gets us there, right? There, um, and I, I believe wholeheartedly in clicktivism. I think I, I don't think that we can trivialise the impact of sharing a Facebook square or tweeting uh, at an event you care about. These are, these are public forums where suddenly we have broken down the power structures that said only you are allowed a microphone and a platform on which to talk to people. And suddenly we, as, as young people, as... as um, people without power are able to have a say. Um, so I guess it's like step up and do something, which sounds really lame. Um, but I, I, I do think that um, sort of political activism and political engagement is, is the answer. And I guess a broader education, um, not, you know, there's that, that, that dichotomy that I've just identified, which Andre goes um, on to discuss better than I can. Um, between, you know, technotopians and, and social service workers. And I think uh, Adam, your work kind of treads that boundary nicely. It's not about one taking control of the future and the other one taking a, a lesser role. It's about collaboration in place. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely about collaboration. Um, and, you know, it, I think from our point of view, like, the question is, what are we going to do about this situation? And, um, and what... I, I guess what we're trying to identify is that um, the idea is is to there's, there's a large portion of our population that's locked out currently of the ability to use um, to use these these tools and technologies to their benefit, um, and and it's because and in the social sector in any case it seems to be from our from our work to do with um, sectoral anxiety. Um, it's about a lack of funding and a capability uh, and conversance in these in these in these fields, um, and I think that. What we're going to need to work really hard to do as millennials is to is to engender a um, a state of, um, of of comfort of comfort with these ideas. Um, our particular view is that we need to learn how to blend and share data, um, so the data is not something that's used on us or done to us, um, as it seems to be so often. Um, you know, when we're recommended something on Facebook or when we're consuming something on the internet, um, you know, this, these are examples of data being done to you. Uh, you know, for the purpose of driving somebody's commercial benefit. Um, and what we really need to do is, is, um, is develop a culture um, and, a, and a framework, an infrastructure of data for social benefit and for social good. Um, 
So that's that's it. Absolutely. Francis and Mike, do you have any thoughts on that? I um, just want to say I absolutely share Nat's enthusiasm for the moment that we're in. Um, things have changed just in the short time that this volume was uh, was printed. So um, there's a fantastic essay, if you haven't read it, by um, Sam Vincent, where he talks about um, becoming a farmer and the, how this is he's defying economic logic and economic rationality to do something that he finds useful, rewarding and essential work. Um, but there's a sort of melancholic tone to that essay. He feels as though he's doing it in defiance of um, his parents and ex, you know, external uh, expectations on him. Um, I think that would have a more positive tone if that essay was written now because with the Corbyn election, uh, which is unquestionably the most exciting and meaningful election of my lifetime, um, we saw an, a genuine contest of ideas and philosophies about um, how society should be run. And uh, it, it has changed what has been this sort of like melancholic pursuit that certainly I've had my whole life of feeling like I'm not going to be, I'm not going to make my life into purely an economic project. Suddenly that feels like a collective um, moment too. Um, the Corbyn, you know, it wasn't just about him as a personality, it was about the manifesto that had all sorts of things in it about mutualism, um, new ways of thinking about ownership. Um, it made fiscal policy okay again, this idea that we can actually collectively build institutions, big, bold institutions that do things together. Um, we can have universal healthcare, we can have free education, things like that. I mean, this is a, this is a wonderful um, and inspiring moment. Um, there's also been, you know, even before the Corbyn election, moments of, um, you know, privatisation in reverse. So um, before Obama left office, he actually tried to um, ban private prisons and, and have them return to public hands. There's all kinds of um, moments when you look closely enough that uh, this sense of an inexorable movement towards the private... Um, it, it's not like squeezing toothpaste out of the tube. Like it, 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 is, it can actually go backwards, and that fills me full of immense hope. Um, just want to say one more quick thing about um, techno utopianism and the the um, the paradigm we've seen until quite recently, which is a sense of um, issues on the left fighting for our attention, almost as if they were in a market kind of situation. Um, and uh, that was the and, and that Andre Dale essay is brilliant. I, I thoroughly recommend um, anyone who hasn't read it. Uh, to read it. Um, but there's been for a long time a paradigm of um, uh, trying to get people's attention, which is obviously very thinly stretched at this moment, using the logic of, of fun, um, entertainment, um, excitement. Um, and I think often that has been, you know, as the comment you were making before, Mike, an, a, a way of obscuring questions of power and systematic change. Um, and uh, it, 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 it can often leave untouched this question of whether um, we should have economics as the governing logic for our society. Um, so I'm delighted that this has been the start of what I hope is a much longer shift to um, a more systematic politics that thinks long term and thinks about and has as its low star this idea that in fact what we want is a society that allows every human being to flourish um, and live the best life they can lead and that requires intervention in the market um, and that is a sort of superordinate goal. It goes beyond um, what is going to hold my attention for this moment, what is going to feel fun and exciting and innovative. Because you know what? No one plans on getting cancer. Like, no one sort of... Um, there can't be... You can't run uh, ideas of, you know, ameliorating the injustice of the market based on kind of what connects with you at this moment and what feels fun and exciting. Um, we need something more systematic, and it feels like that's possible now more than ever. Uh, yeah, I... 
totally agree. And with uh, um, Jeremy Corbyn and um, also with Trump, it is this, there is a sense of inchoate anger at the current structures um, of society. Um, and even in, in Australia, at a National Press Club address, Richard D. Nadali has raised the idea of reducing the working week. Um, and I guess related to what Francis talked about, it's the idea of what what is work and why do we value it? Um, and I think a lot of the these drug testing of welfare recipients, it's almost a punishment um, uh, that work is all the responsibility um, of the individual um, and that it's their fault for not being able to find work. Um, and I think if these certain trends are going to continue, um, I don't think they're inherently um, bad trends. Um, automation may reduce jobs, but why do people do, why do people work? Like, is there a reason why if a machine can do a job, a human needs to do it? It seems uh, redundant, but if we're gonna get to a place, this sort of utopia where we can reduce, say, to a six hour working week or introduce things like a universal Basic, we need those sort of structures or some form of structure to support um, this change in how we conceive of work and the economy. Yeah, absolutely. And we mentioned briefly about the concept of UBI and I think this leads into a, a larger discussion which I believe Sydney Ideas will be having a, an event devoted to looking at uh, the UBI and, and how it might be implemented and the pros and cons of it, so we won't get too deep into it there. But I'm absolutely with you on the, the Corbyn election. I, you know, the, the bit of work that I do with policy, um, and we had an edition um, the start of last year called Fixing the System. All we heard about was the short-termism, and this is a very good example of uh, a shift away from that, despite the fact that everyone criticised Corbyn for his short game. It was, it was very much about the long-term the long -term goal, and it's really inspiring to see we will, we've got a bit of time for questions, so start getting yourselves ready. But before we do, um, I just wanted to finish on a, on a bit of a practical note. These, these things tend to get quite uh, lofty, abstract, and often quite dire. But we have uh, Christy Mansfield here who was uh, collaborated with Adam on the piece that they wrote. Um, and we'll just have to drop you down a mic, Christy. Someone want to give those up? I don't know if you could. Mics everywhere. I just wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about, I think, the very fact that you're here and that you collaborated with, with Adam on this piece is a great example of uh, your sort of broader ideas about intergenerational collaboration. I, I did an interview with 2SER recently, yesterday, I think, and, and one of the questions he asked was about work and how, you know, technological change is, is making the, the changing nature of the workforce scary for older people, but doesn't necessarily need to increase this divide between generations. It, it can be a source for great productivity. Thanks, um, and thanks for uh, the panel. It's fantastic to hear so many um, incredible insights from everyone. There was a lot of discussion on shared power, and I, I think it really occurred to me personally that 
um, as a Gen Xer at a certain point in my career with resources and networks available. To me, that, you know, in a very practical way, um, sharing power now is absolutely essential to, to get up and do something, um, as you said, and also to find radical solutions. So I think hierarchies are no longer relevant. They're not relevant in our society. And, and when we have ideas and we're working together cross-generationally, um, you know, it's really an opportunity for Gen Xers not to... And I hate this term, and I heard it at the uh, Sydney Writers' Festival when we did the last panel, mentor a millennial. It's not about mentoring a millennial. It's about sharing power and um, finding solutions um, that help get us to the next phase. And, I th and, and so, you know, we collaborate with, um, with all people who are interested in uh, carving forward a, a solution in the community that we work, work with, uh, young people and um, boomers as well across generations. And I think so long as we have that mindset, then we're going to have a good opportunity, I would imagine, to kind of drive forward um, action and solutions. Yeah, and I guess the mentoring aspect is, um, like you say, it's not so much about taking someone under your wing and, and telling them how things work. I mean, Gen Y is the most educated generation yet. Um, but there's a sharing of experience and then the sharing of power that comes with that that is more yeah, important, I think. So does anyone have any questions? We're going to have a roving mic, and this is uh, being podcasted, so if you could just wait till the mic comes to you. Um, that would be great. So we'll start up here. Oh, thank you. Yes, one thing that strikes me, I know 50-year-olds who do everything on a smartphone, taking notes and reading, reading things, yet I see five millennial panellists and they're all using leaf-based products to take their notes and read from. What's going on? We're uh, multimedia. We like to, to switch between defining, defining Gen Y. I, I genuinely um, decided it would be obnoxious to have my smartphone up here. I was like, I don't know if it will wash well. I had that same thing. I was going to read everyone's, because uh, I couldn't print out, I was going to read everyone's bios off my phone, but I thought that might look a bit obnoxious too. Up the back. If you hold the view that the current two major parties in Australia are failed, weak and corrupt, uh, do you take um, a positive view out of what Macron has achieved in France with En Marche to create a youthful and powerful, albeit centrist, movement that completely washes away with the uh, current failed system? Who wants to start? Um. I think partly the Macron um, is a factor of the, two, the staggered election system uh, in France. I think he gets it's the first two of however many parties run, so you only really conceivably need for under 25% of the vote you can get into the second round. Um, so I think partly um, I think there are a lot of specific... Um, domestic reasons. He was running against a um, party founded by Nazis, so that probably helped him in the final uh, stage. And there were the two parties, um, I think Francois Hollande's one of the least popular um, prime ministers in 
French history, so he did have a couple of advantages. But I do, I think, maybe not in the Australian system, but I think there's definitely room for, um, within the party structures um, that currently exist, there are room for insurgent um, movements within those parties, and we sort of see that in constant internal struggles in various uh, Australian political parties. But I think um, perhaps within the coalition or Labor um, or the other parties, there is room for an upswell um, of political sport for new ideas. I think the parties in Australia are quite reasonably diverse and there is room for um, new ideas to enter into those larger old parties in Australia. Yeah, those, um, thanks for that. Um, I think, you know, and I don't want to add too much to like the general anxiety that everybody feels about politics and I think millennials especially, but you know, I do, I do find it interesting that it seems to be that the same, you know, um, upswell, the same populism, outrage, anger, whatever you like, um, that brought, obviously, clearly brought Macron to power, you know, as you say, sweeping aside all the um, incumbents, uh, also brought us Trump in the not so distant past. Um, so, you know, it's, it's clear that these things are happening because there is an enormous appetite for change. Um, but we also have to be very careful about how we frame the discussion and make sure that that change is actually the change we want and need. Nat, where does a get up draw its inspiration from if you've got two parties? Is it about the sort of micro parties? Is it about badgering the federal treasurer and getting incremental change? What's the inspiration? The saving grace in all of this is people, and I guess that's the get-up model, right? That we we believe the system is corrupt, and and we believe that the system is rigged and 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 broken and needs reform. But that people, the way our democracy works is that people, by acting together, Jane and Joe with their fifty bucks chipping in, um, can actually make a difference when we all do it at once. Um, I, I think we, we did job interviews this week and one of the questions we asked was why hasn't uh, Bernie Sanders or a Jeremy Corbyn uh, emerged in the Australian political context? And, and the answers I heard again and again were the um, some iteration of the greasy pole you need to climb up in order to become an MP or a senator. Um, and I, I do think there is need for structural reform within the political parties, that the, 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 the current system favours people who... Uh, are willing to pursue power at every cost um, and compromise their values. Um, but uh, I do think that there's cause for hope as well and, and we have... Well, I think we're seeing policy change at a rate that is rather unprecedented and it's coming from some of the more antagonistic elements. So just on the rise of Trump, we uh, have an unprecedented one nation vote. Um, the Queensland election will be held next year and uh, there's a significant uh, swathe of the voting population who are defecting to one nation. Uh, so we do need to be vigilant and... and and, and run insurgent political players, whether they're independents or whether we can convince the major parties that this is the threat they need uh, to properly reform 
their systems? Uh, sure. So, um, of course, there are problems with uh, the current political setup. Um, there are ways in which poli formal politics operates as a closed loop um, that uh, is impervious sometimes to uh, people's um, desires. There's problems with short-termism. There's problems with um, focus group politics. There's problems with the people who are doing those jobs of politicians, even with the best will in the world, themselves not having really time to read, think, and reflect in that work. Um, but I think... I'm not one to think we need a sort of, you know, cleansing fire or to, or to kind of ditch the existing system. There are all sorts of places in our society where democracy exists. Um, we don't just need to, you know, look at formal politics. Um, the sort of circuitry of our society is still intact um, from the 20th century and before. Um, there are uh, places for democracy in your workplace. There are unions. For some people, there are, there are churches. There are things happening online. Um, there are all these opportunities, more than ever before, for um, where you can go, express your voice, and, and push these organisations to um, tell a big story rather than a narrow story about what they do and how society needs to change. Um, so, yeah, I'm still quite hopeful that there's, um, there's a lot of, you know, the future is going to be more rather than less democratic, I think. Uh, yeah, up the front here. Uh, we are all for social justice. The Nordic model is admirable. But who's going to pay for all this? <laughs> the Australian population is aging, imposing greater burden on the working population. Young people are struggling. They expect more support and services, maybe even the universal basic income. In the meantime, the commodity boom may may not come back for a long time. Immigration could be a solution, but Malcolm just announced to, you know, a range of things to slow down immigration. So in the, in the end, who's gonna pay for all this? Yeah, it's a question that, that comes up a lot. We were talking about this before um, the panel started, but does anyone have anything? Um, look, profits are extremely high. Australia was one of the um, only countries to avoid a global recession. Um, we are second only to Switzerland in the average level of wealth that we have um, in our society. Um, if not us, who? <laughs> um, the, the share of profits that have gone to labour is at a 30-year low. And so um, what we're looking at is an incremental shift of wealth and power to um, uh, corporations, effectively, um, the incremental eating away of the mechanisms that allowed that profit and wealth to be shared. Historically, we had a very, we're a very egalitarian country throughout the 20th century. Um, we've now entered the top half for inequality in the OECD. Um, we can absolutely fix this. It's just going to require political will um, and it's going to require a systematic shift of power away from the top. I might add one thing to that. Um, the, we just commissioned modelling on the petroleum resources rent tax. 95% of oil and gas projects in this country pay $0 in PRRT. Um, that's, that's the tax that they are supposed to pay for using up uh, finite resources that they drill out of the ground. Um, the modelling we did, taking best practice models from the United States, from Canada, from other resource-rich economies, showed that we could be making an extra $52 billion a year uh, if these oil and gas projects just paid their fair share. So 
it's not only the sort of disproportionate wealth um, flowing into the coffers of shareholders and, and, and big business, it's, it's also a broken tax system that is not get, taking the tax we need uh, from corporations and, and also the wealthy if we look at superannuation tax concessions, uh, negative gearing, capital gains tax discount, these are all uh, revenue raising measures that the modelling's there, the evidence is there, the government just needs to do it. And just maybe add that this, um, how we're going to pay for it only seems to apply to our ideas that come outside a certain framework. So cutting, there has been some backlash, but um, the party that would be against a lot of some of the measures that we're advocating does not have a problem with uh, tens of billions of dollars, um, corporations paying tens of billions of dollars less in tax. So there's sort of a, there's certain um, priorities that are okay for wealth to be transferred to. Um, and then there's certain areas where wealth is, it's seen as a vast expense. And I think um, at a sort of a more micro level, um, yeah, absolutely, the, the, the higher level, it's all about the redistribution of wealth um, and, and taxing companies that earn crazy amounts of money is, is the only sort of way, well, not the only, but the only obvious way to do that. But I think um, a lot of the work that Adam and Christy do is at the more place-based community level is about um, philanthropic engagement and finding ways to, and unfortunately it does, it is predicated on selling it to, to people in an economic language, but um, I know in the Logan Together project they try to uh, encourage, like there's, there's very clear evidence that suggests when a community does well, it does well economically. When it's social services are set up well, the economy benefits as well. So it's a, a whole framework, I think, on a, on a more place-based level of, of getting better philanthropic engagement with, with these kind of social service reforms. Uh, yeah, down the front here. Oh, sorry. So I was going to ask a question. Thank you. Um, I, um, I, I mean, people like you, you ask who's going to own the future. You are. But it's a matter of what you do with it. And I, I hear a lot of comment about uh, give back the power to the community. The community never had any power. The community's got more power now than it ever had. If you go back to the 1800s, the early 1900s, the people were virtual slaves. The corporations took the money. They had different names, but the corporations still took the money. So things are better now because the questions can be asked. But if I look in this room and I look on the panel, I'll, I'll maintain that probably everybody here is in the top 5 or 10% of the socioeconomic group of this society. There are no workers here. There are no people who dug a ditch or whose father dug a ditch or mother dug a ditch. Everybody here is educated. And the only thing I can hear is that every group in society who's wanted change has had to fight for it. But the modern generation are not trying to fight for it. They're hoping to be given it. It won't come without a fight. And I don't hear a fight in any of the people who are talking, except maybe you. So where's the fight? I'm up for a fight, for sure. <laughs> I'm up for a fight. Um, look, I absolutely hear what you're saying about um, ways in which uh, ideas of insecure work and, um, you know, 
low pay. We've been here before, and we've been here before far worse than, than where things currently are. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, insecure work isn't new. Um, it's as old as capitalism. If you think about things like, you know, the gig economy and platform work, that is the oldest form of work there is. The, the piecework system, putting out, um, you know, being paid by, by piece rather than having a standard employment relationship. Um, all the, the difference is that with a, a platform that all those aspects of the employment relationship, so the pay negotiation, the supervision of the task, the allocation of the task, the discipline, the pay, that all happens automatically without human engagement. My fear about that is that it suddenly turned it into something that's apolitical, that we accept rather than realise there is a human being programming that machine, making those decisions. There is power um, that is in existence uh, that we do not have, we can we can look beyond the machine and we can see where the power is. We need where, so an extraordinary thing happened in Australia in the early 20th century when um, we built the arbitration system that lifted so many people out of poverty. It was based on this extraordinary idea from you know, the mid 19th century that said that in order to have true freedom, you need to have a degree of economic security. And, to have, and what that means is that wages have to be taken out of competition at the bottom to the level of being able to have a dignified, you know, the life of frugal comfort was the, you know, expression in the Harvester decision. That's a magnificent idea. That continues to be an absolutely magnificent idea. True freedom needs, the, needs intervention in the market and it needs a huge and ambitious web of laws that support it. You know, we had the arbitration system that existed, you know, for the best part of 100 years. You know, we need to reimagine... Um, what that system is going to look like in conditions of automation, in conditions of gender equality and racial equality, um, and in conditions of decarbonisation. And then we need to fight for it because the corporations that are currently um, making merry in this situation of, you know, laissez-faire, no rules, no regulations, they are not going to give out their power and money without a fight. So we need to have a compelling um, rationale for what we're doing, and then we need to argue for systematic institutional change. I, yeah, I'm up for a fight as well. And I guess this room, I absolutely understand and um, agree that there's a, um, a, there's a lot of question around whether our generation is, is equipped for a fight. You know, the question of how does clicktivism transfer to, to actual activism is one that uh, you would know probably understand a lot more than I would, Nat. But I think um, outside of this particular room and this, this forum, there's definitely a um, well, I mean, I witness a, a strong passion amongst young people, whether it might, you know, be at the level of, of engaging with things on a, on a, in a social media and media level, but also in terms of, you know, protests and rallies that I go to seem to have been, over the last few years, increasing in number with young people in particular. It's a lot of, um, and, I, and, it, and it, it's come out in the, you know, the, the Sanders vote and the Corbyn vote where millennials have been the driving force behind these things. Well, one of the large forces behind these things. I think there is... Uh, a lot of fight there, it's just finding outlets for it and, and figuring out how it's going to crystallise. Anyone else want to comment on that? So, fight for it, yeah, that's an interesting, interesting suggestion. Um, have we not done enough fighting? I mean, really, do we really need to, to fight for it? Um, ultimately, I think um, that I mean, there are so many different ways of asking the question, are things getting better or are things getting worse? Um, I mean, in so many ways, things are absolutely getting better. Um, you're quite right to point out the community does have a lot of power. Um, you know, and Generation Y, as the millennial generation are, absolutely, you know, among the best educated uh, generations ever to live. 
Um, is that getting better? I mean, there's been this, it seems to be there's been this, um, a, something like a fetishization of education um, that's really taken grip uh, in, in recent years. And, you know, now it's absolutely impossible to find, you know, any kind of work that, you know, as I'm sure you'll understand, um, Mike, you know, you want to feel proud about what you do and, and it's impossible to find work out there that you can feel proud about, it seems, now and that you can be celebrated for without being extremely educated, without having like at least a master's degree. And I say that with somebody who's only got a bachelor myself, so I apologise. Um, but I think that, um, you know, it's, uh, that, that absolutely needs to change. We absolutely need to learn how to celebrate, um, you know, those vocations and occupations that um, are part of a more balanced society for a start. Um, and ultimately, power will, will come to us. And if we can engender change that comes from the grassroots, mm. um, that's more about uh, focusing on, on the local level and what we can do uh, you know, within community, um, it doesn't matter whether we're handed power by anybody else. Um, and that's, I think, what I would, what I would advocate for. Mm. Yeah, and I'd, I'd just add, I think, um, Nats Peets uh, mentions this, but I think the, my generation has been a big instigator of some quite rapid shifts in society, um, whether that's opinions about surrounding same-sex relationships or climate change. And I think we're seeing in the last couple of years, and say with Jeremy Corbyn and his uh, movement in the UK, uh, some of those, that activism is starting to shift into the economic sphere and I think that's going to be the new, um, like the new fighting ground for a generation. I think they're going to start, those economic issues are going to become more important um, as the crucial activist issues of the day. Yeah. It's funny, at GetUp, there's this public perception of GetUp as being this youth organisation that has, like, all these young people, and it, it's not true. Uh, it's, like, 55-year-old <laughs> women uh, who just want to do their bit. Um, and we, we have this challenge that we are trying to grow our youth uh, following, and we never ask ourselves a question or, or posit the sort of hypothesis that young people are, are not engaged or that they're not up for the fight. Like, that that's not the problem. Our, like, our interpretation is that the problem is us. Like, we're not meeting young people where they're at. We're not on the platforms that they're using. We're not giving them the tools and the methods of engagement that they need uh, to take this fight. And, and I guess that... That's about technological innovation. That's about young people are using digital platforms uh, and technology in ways they've never done before. Um, and that's where we need to be innovating. That's how we need to get into the pockets and the iPhones and the news feeds of these people um, and give them the mechanisms they need to engage. Absolutely. We have time for maybe one or two more. We've got one down the front. Um, I have one question around how unique some of these issues are to this generation. Because I found it actually quite fascinating that while we started out with some pretty radical sounding things, particularly Nat's really quite inspirational speech, you're a fantastic speaker, um, early on, when we actually got to the question of policy prescriptions, it sounded to me like unwind Thatcherism and Reaganism. 
There was nothing in the policy prescriptions at all that wasn't thoroughly debated during the 20th century. And I mean, personally, I agree that where the 20th century ended with that move towards small government cut services, I am not happy with that. I would like to see that reverse a good deal. But nevertheless, there was absolutely nothing in terms of the policy prescriptions that couldn't have, couldn't have been and was debated in 1983. And I do think it's fascinating that if you look at both Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, they're actually quite old men. And I mean, you know, I think Bernie um, Sanders obviously was a political figure before Reagan became president. Jeremy Corbyn, I think, survived the 90s and 2000s by hiding under a rock while Tony Blair embraced, embraced Thatcherism. So I'm just, I'm not bringing this up as in any way a critical comment. I just think it's an interesting observation mm. that a lot of these things are not new. And I actually wonder whether the true 21st century debates will be actually around things like the UBI and things that are actually far more radical and weren't um, thought about in the 20th century. Yeah, I absolutely agree that they will be. And I guess the point is, um, uh, the co-editor of our Fixing the System edition, Anne Tiernan, is a great, she always brings up the point, I was at a, a public service conference with her and she says that, um, you know, we know what needs to be done with a lot of things. We've, we've been talking about it for a long time and a lot of the time it's not about having to reinvent the wheel with every stage or every generation, it's just about using it better than we have in the past or things that have been discussed have gotten traction, say, in the 80s with, you know, talking about place-based policy, Gough Whitlam introduced one of the most widespread radical place-based initiatives and it kind of just crumbled and didn't go anywhere. But the framework was set up and so it's about taking advantage of these things going forward and figuring out how they apply to a society where, you know, great digital disruption is happening or, you know, the changing nature of the workforce and these sort of things. Does anyone else want to...? Uh, yeah, I was just like, I mentioned user um, anecdote in my article referring to uh, replicators in Star Trek. And Star Trek's basically a society without, there's no scarce goods. There's, um, which is with automation, sort of a world that we are moving towards. And that's why I think um, in some of our pieces, you do see universal basic income um, keep coming up. Also, the slightly simpler um, solution of reducing uh, working hours during the week, which is already being trialled in certain parts of the world. Um, so I do think these ideas are starting to um, flow into the consciousness. Um, I do, yeah, with the fact that Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn are both... Um, slightly older. Um, I sort of take that as partly because they did arrive on the political scene before Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, um, and that's their, the framework in which they were formed is very different to a lot of the um, middle-aged politicians who arrived, say, in the uh, early 80s. Uh GetUp just sent out this survey and we asked a bunch of questions about maximum wage, uh, four-day working week, shorter working hours, UBI, universal job guarantee, like all of these policies are out there. 
Um, but I, I take the point wholeheartedly that there are not many people in the Australian political context talking about them and talking about them in a rigorous and uh, challenging way. So maybe maybe that's like the call to arms of like, if you're someone that's interested in this, write op-eds and we'll share them on our Facebook page and, you know, tweet about it, tweet with some like cutting remark that really cuts to the heart of an issue and like you will get retweeted because... Did it, this, the, the ideas are out there. It's, we're not operating in a policy vacuum. We're just we're not we're not talking about them yet. But it, it's coming, right? Um, look, the idea that took over the world in uh, the mid 1940s, the neoliberal idea, was taking a really old idea and updating it for present circumstances. So it took I ideas of liberalism and it um, harnessed them to the state, which was then in the ascendancy. I've got no difficulty with the idea that our politics today can be a blend of older ideas, old traditions, updated for present circumstances. Um, I think the basic ethos of social democracy is extremely sound and it's an old idea that you know you can trace to the mid 19th century, um, but it's never really been rethought and re-envisaged in three ways. Um, thinking through the lens of decarbonisation, true gender and racial equality and automation. They, when you, when you apply those three ideas to that old social democratic idea, it takes you in some really interesting policy directions. So truly decarbonising our system take, takes us to all sorts of um, ideas around decentralising our food system, food production. Um, gender equality means finally getting rid of um, the long shadow of the male um, breadwinner and the idea that um, women should be doing overwhelming quantity of care work which still prevails and automation gives us the promise of getting rid of menial work. I mean that is a thing to be greatly celebrated and excited about. I think we might be about out of time. We've had one gent here with his hand up for a while. If you can make it a quick question I'm sure we started a few minutes late so we can probably get one quick one in. Thanks for that. Um, so my question is basically, so you know, we're the only generation probably to be labelled very emotional and very rational at the same time, because uh, when we when we go out and do protests, we are labelled as you know, uh, you guys again, and social media again. Just you guys can only do work on social media when we go out and protest. We are we are labelled as as people who are disrupting stuff. Then, uh, then we get some sort of a data uh, about, let's say, climate change, and then we we get we go to them, uh, the government and stuff. That oh, see, we we've got new numbers. They support our points, and they're like, yeah, but you don't understand the social aspects of it. You you don't understand the emotional aspects of it. Sorry for making it a long question, but my point here is is that are we targeting the right arguments or uh, maybe? The people on the other side are just biased. Uh, do we need to focus more on, on what's going on behind the scenes rather than working on bringing in more data, bringing in more empathetic arguments? Because they, they don't seem to work. So, yeah. Anyone want to start? <laughs> Uh, more data is always the answer. <laughs> always, always the answer. Um, yeah, look, we are, you know, we're a very impassioned generation. Um, you know, and my, my co-panellists are a testament to that. Uh, and I think, um, 
it's a really good, it's a really good thing that we are, um, you know, both impassioned and rational and able to form rational argument on the basis of evidence. Um, you know, that is a cause for hope, I think, certainly. Um, so I have, I have no criticism for my generation in that respect. And I guess it's, it's uh, not 100% clear on what you mean by behind the scenes, but um, I guess a lot of what we've been talking about is, you know, small or perhaps not so small ways of addressing larger issues. And so it's more of a, I guess, a ground up thing. There's a lot of, millennials tend to get caught up a lot in, in talking big and about um, systemic inequality, these things, and these are super important, but there's also a lot to be done at the, 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 the ground level, the grassroots level that can influence change from below. I'm not sure if that answers your question. Okay, well, I think that we are about out of time. Um, thank you again to Sydney Ideas and Sydney University for having us. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you could join me in thanking my four fantastic guests. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney underscore ideas.